I'm Kara from Burlington, Vermont. I'm Andrew from Long Island. I'm Ben from Louisiana. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm John Hodgman, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is George R.R. R. Martin. He is the author of an extremely popular series of fantasy novels, collectively known as A Song of Ice and Fire. There will eventually be seven of them. The most recent, the fifth, is titled A Dance with Dragons. It was published in July after a several-year wait. Martin has received numerous awards for his writing and was named by Time magazine as one of the most influential people of 2011. Named uh, by me, by the way. I wrote the piece. A Song of Ice and Fire was recently adapted into the HBO series Game of Thrones. He's also written some of the scripts for the television version, including its pilot. Here's a clip from that episode. In it, King Robert, played by Mark Addy, has just brought on Ned Stark, played by Sean Bean, to be his second-in-command, the King's Hand. You as good with a spear as you used to be? No, but I'm still better than you. (laughs) I know what I'm putting you through. Thank you for saying yes. I only ask you because I need you. You're a loyal friend. You hear me? A loyal friend. The last one I've got. I hope I'll serve you well. You will. And I'll make sure you don't look so fucking grim all the time. So, first of all, George R. R. Martin, congratulations on all of the recent success of the TV show and uh, the new book, A Dance with Dragons, and um, and getting that done and out there and the number one best-selling success of it all. Oh, well, thank you very much. It has been a pretty exciting year. I would imagine so. Uh, let's go back a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about something from early in your body of work. Uh, On the end of August, a letter surfaced and was reprinted all over the Internet. It was a letter that you had written to the letters column of the Avengers comic book in 1964. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I believe you, you would have been about 16 at this time. And in this particular letter, you had suggested that Avengers number nine was slightly better than Fantastic Four number 32. And my question is, do you remember why? Now, you can comment on the particular story, because I believe Avengers number 9 was the introduction of Wonder Man. Oh, was it? Oh, yes, I liked Wonder Man. And you sure. know why? Well, <laughs> I, please. Now it's coming back to me vividly. Uh, oh, Wonder Man dies in that story. Yeah. He's, he's a brand new character. He's introduced, and he dies. And it was, it was very... Uh, heart-wrenching. I, I like the character. It was a tragic, doomed character. I guess I've responded to uh, tragic, doomed characters even since I was a high school kid. Especially those who might die at any minute. That's right. Of course, being comic books, Wonder Man didn't stay dead for long. He he came back a year or two later and, you know, had a long run for many, many decades. But the fact that he was introduced and joined the Avengers and all died in that one issue had a, had a great impact on me when I was uh, a high school kid. I imagine it was pretty surprising in a comic book at that time to see a whole story arc resolve tragically in that way in one issue. Uh, yes, yes. I, I mean, it's it's hard to uh, 
understand, I think, from the vantage point of, of 2011, um, exactly what was going on back in comics in the, in the early 60s. Um, it was the Marvel comics that I was writing letters to were really revolutionary for the time. Stan Lee was doing, uh, you know, some amazing work. Um, up to then, they, the dominant mm-hmm. comic book had been the DC comics, which at that time were always very circular. You know, Superman or Batman would have an adventure, and at the end of the adventure, they would wind up exactly where they were. Right. And then the next issue would follow the same pattern. So nothing ever changed for the DC characters. The Marvel characters were constantly changing. Important things were happening, and the the lineup of adventures was, was constantly changing. People would quit, and they would have fights and all of that, and as opposed to DC, where, like, everybody got along, and it, it was all very nice, and, of course, all the heroes liked each other. Um, none of this was happening. Uh, so, really, Stanley introduced a whole concept of characterization to, uh, to comic books and, and conflict. And uh, maybe even a touch of gray in some of the characters. And, boy, uh, looking back on it now, I can see uh, that it uh, probably was a bigger influence on my own work than I would have dreamed. So what did it mean? I I presume at this point that you were getting your first letters printed that you already had in mind that you you might want to be a writer. Well, once I gave up on the idea of being an astronaut, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, at a certain level, you think, well, I'm going to actually fly to other planets. And then you think, well, maybe I'm not going to fly to other planets. I think I better uh, just write about other planets and other civilizations. But um, I think it was high school when I first determined that I would uh, try writing stories for a living. Uh, although I'd been making up stories for like a decade uh, before that, even when I was in grade school. I would write little monster stories and sell them to the other kids in the projects for a nickel, which I would buy me a candy bar at the time. Would this uh, be so, in Would uh, this be in Bayonne, New Jersey? Uh, in Bayonne, New Jersey, yeah. And uh, what sort of candy bar are we talking about? Uh, a Milky Way. Uh, I was a Milky Way guy. Sure. Maybe, maybe it was the science fictional name of the candy bar. You were always uh, You were always looking to the stars. That's right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> You know, and it was in those letter columns where a lot of what we we term as as fandom in the comic book, science fiction, fantasy world, really first people first met each other long before there was an internet. That's where uh, yes, that that's, sense that's of community. Um, it actually began, you know, long before my birth. In is science fiction fandom grew out of the letter columns in Amazing Stories and Astounding back in the nineteen. 30s. Um, you know, when you had a letter printed in those days, they would print your full address. So fans of the science fiction stories at the time saw that there were other fans out there and they could see their address and they wrote them a letter and correspondences grew up. And then eventually some people decided, well, let's get together and, and uh, actually meet in the flesh. And they would uh, get together in, I think the first gathering was in Philadelphia and then there was ones in New York. And that was where science fiction fandom, which is the, the granddaddy of all fandoms, uh, began in the 1930s and the early 1940s. You, I, I think, just got back from, from Worldcon, the World Science Fiction Convention. Yes. Which you've been going to for a number of years. Uh, yes, I went to my first one in 1971. So um, I've been, I go almost every year. So for, for the listeners who, who maybe are not so familiar with the, with the world of the conventions, particularly one that's as old and as storied as Worldcon, what is it like? What, is it, what does it offer you? And particularly, what did it offer you? In 1971 and in the 70s, when you were coming up as a writer, well, uh, of course, Worldcon uh, 
goes all the way back to 1939. That was the first one, and it did grow out of the early science fiction fandom when uh, the people were reading each other's letters and they decided to uh, to get together right. and uh, have a meet each other in the flesh, and then conventions grew out of that, and eventually someone said, let's have a world convention. So they had the first one in New York City in 39 to coincide with the 1939 New York World's Fair. And um, people came from, boy, as far away as Philadelphia, I think, <laughs> and, and Boston. Actually, I think they were one or two people who came in from California. Uh, and it's been going ever since. Uh, you know, as someone who, uh, my personally, who at one point wanted to be a, you know, a serious uh, short story writer, a very misguided uh, uh, ambition of mine, <laughs> much like you're wanting to be an astronaut. It was never to be. But there were no conventions for me to go to, for example, uh, for serious short story writers. I guess they call them MFA programs, but, you know, you had to pay a, a lot of money. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately a whole different world, uh, the the literary genre, let us say. And so for the writer of, of, of any of the many genres that might be uh, fall under the umbrella of science fiction or any of the, the challenges to that genre, I mean, what does Worldcon offer you that, say, someone who's writing in, in a literary genre can't find because they don't have anything like that? Well, f it's a chance to meet your readers face-to-face, mm -hmm. -face. And, and I've always felt that's one of the great things about uh, science fiction and fantasy and, and the imaginative uh, the imaginative side of literature is that we we do have this fandom and we can go and we can meet people who read the stories and they we can, we sign their books and they they come up to us and we party with them at night and they say hey we like this story we didn't like this story this is what the problems have oh I liked your story except you got this stuff wrong about the planet there's a lot of like scientists and stuff over there so um, you know we get this kind of feedback I I have a feeling sometimes that a lot of people who are working in the in the literary genre. Uh, they write the stories, and it's like throwing it down the well. They never meet anyone who's actually reading their stories. Well, often there aren't very many. Uh, well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> there is that too. Um, but there, but you're right. I mean, there's just there's just a lack of a conversation in the same way that you see in and that you've traditionally seen in in science fiction and fantasy writing. And frankly, I think that now there is even more. There's there's actually an emphasis. The publishers are making to to their writers who don't necessarily fall into literary, but maybe don't fall into science fiction and fantasy, to start that conversation with readers. Or the internet is changing everything. Yeah, through the internet, because it's not been a part of literary publishing before. But now uh, people are suggesting, well, you should be doing this in order to to nurture, to find and, and nurture an audience. Yes, I don't think you can beat J.D. Salinger anymore. At least the publishers don't want you to be J.D. Salinger, <laughs> uh, you know, writing your stories and living in, in your splendid isolation. Uh, they they do want you to have uh, web pages and to uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, all of this stuff. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm John Hodgman, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is George R.R. R. Martin. He's the author of the series of fantasy novels known as A Song of Ice and Fire, also commonly known as Game of Thrones for the HBO series that is based upon it. Here's a clip from the show. Uh, in it, uh, members of the warrior brotherhood known as the Night's Watch discuss the mysterious threats that lie north of the enormous wall which they've been sworn to protect. They were touched by white walkers. Only fire will stop them. 
How do you know that? I read about it in a book. A very old book in Maester Eamon's library. What else did the book say? The White Walkers sleep beneath the ice for thousands of years. And when they wake up... And when they wake up... What? I hope the wall's high enough. But one of the things that first struck me when I first found the books was that this was a fantasy world which not a lot of people would fantasize about living in. There wasn't a lot of (laughs) fantasy aspect to it in the sense that it depicts it is set in a alternate world or 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 a made-up secondary universe tolkien called it we'll call it a secondary universe that's the term i came up for with it actually just independently just now um didn't steal from tolkien at all there (laughs) uh again so it's set it's set in a uh in a secondary universe uh and it has certain sword and sorcery trappings, although more swords than sorcery, certainly in the first book. But it also is really rooted, grounded, if not sort of mired in in the harsh realities of, of medieval life and a harsh feudal caste system where the only medicine around is like a kind of poultice and people are routinely considered elderly at the age of 35 because they're dying all the time. And right. it's, not, it's not a place or a world or a time where most people would want to live. Why, why was it important to you to to write in that setting. Well, as I said, I, I read a lot of uh, I read a lot of different things, not just science fiction and fantasy. And one of the things I read a lot of is history and historical fiction. I'm a big fan of historical fiction, mm-hmm. and of course, I did read fantasy as well. And as I read that, it, it I sort of had a problem with a lot of the fantasy I was reading because it seemed to me that the um, the Middle Ages or some some version of the quasi-Middle Ages was the preferred setting of uh, a vast majority of the fantasy novels that I was reading by Tolkien imitators and other fantasists, and yet they were getting it all wrong. They, they had – it was sort of a Disneyland Middle Ages where they had castles and princesses and all that and, you know, the sort of the trappings of a, of, a, of a class system, but they didn't seem to understand what a class system actually meant. Um, or it would and, mean and to and the it was people all too, who are trapped within it. Uh, exactly on both on both the, the the you know high status and low status alike. It's a it's a it's a kind of life sentence. It was like a Renfair Middle Ages where where you know even though you had castles and princesses and walled cities and all that, uh, the sensibilities were those of twentieth uh, century Americans. Uh, but you didn't see that in in good historical fiction. There were people who were writing fine historical fiction that really grasp it. So in my kind of cross-genre, genre-bending way, I said, you know, what I'd like to do is to is to write a an epic fantasy that had the imagination and the sense of wonder that you get in the best fantasy, but the gritty realism of the best historical fiction. If I could combine those two threads, I might have something um, fairly unique and, and well worth reading. But one, one thing in the book, which I presume is is made out of whole cloth uh, of imagination is is the religions of this world. These are not religions of the of the primary world that we live in. The world of uh, of your novels has several major religions, some minor sects. The 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 continent in which most of the characters spend most of their time have have two well developed uh, religious philosophies with an with an a, a 
a new sect that's coming to the continent and gaining inroads. And I was just curious as to, well, how does one sit down and and create a religion? Well, um, yeah, the religions are are made up religions, and that's that's imaginative religions. But I I base them all on on actual real world religions, just sort of tweaking it or expanding it a little. I mean, the the faith of the seven is of course based on the medieval Catholic Church, and their central doctrine that uh, there are there is one God who has seven aspects is partly based on the Catholic belief that there's one God, but he has three aspects, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. And with the seven, instead, you have uh, you have the father, the mother, the, the maiden, the crone, the smith, the uh, warrior, and, and the stranger, who's the, uh, the death figure. So, um, you know, I, that's, I think, the general process for, for doing fantasy is you, you have to root it in reality. But then you then you play with it a little. Then you add the imaginative element, and then you make it largely bigger. Like the wall in my books, of course, was inspired by Hadrian's Wall, which I visited uh, on my first trip to uh, the United Kingdom back in the early 80s. And we climbed to the top of Hadrian's Wall, and I, I looked north and uh, tried to imagine what it was like to be a Roman soldier stationed there, you know, in the first century at the end of the known world, staring at these distant hills and wondering what lived there and what might come out of it, because you were you were looking off the end of the world, um, protecting the civilized world against whatever might emerge from those trees. Of course, what tended to emerge from those trees were Scots, but, uh, you know, we couldn't use that, so I, I made the wall considerably bigger and uh, made it made of ice. You know, that's the process of, uh, of fantasizing. Because Hadrian's there, so. wall, I think, was made of lucite originally, so not ice at all. <laughs> Something like that. Here, on the wall, we are all one house. Here, you begin anew. A man of the Night's Watch lives his life for the realm and all the people in it. You can take your vows here tonight at sunset. Do any of you still keep the old gods? I do, my lord. You want to take your vow before a heart tree as your uncle did? Yes, my lord. You find a wormwood a mile north of the wall and your old gods too, maybe. Well, it is beyond the wall that that magic and the supernatural comes to invade the realistic world that you've built to the south of the wall. And what I one of the things I really enjoy about the book is that you're in the midst of a fantasy book that is labeled as a fantasy book. And maybe this is one of the ways where the labeling as a fantasy uh, um, actually plays nicely on the reader's expectations because you get to mess around with them a bit because all of the main characters, for the most part, believe that the fantasy trappings that are normally part and parcel of a fantasy world, the magic and the supernatural creatures and everything else, are themselves legendary, the stuff of kind of juvenilia, you know, fairy tales and, and juvenile fantasy. And yet it's starting to, as the books go on, become more and more a part of the characters' everyday lives. One of the areas where I think this is interesting but also kind of troubling as I read on is with regard to death. I mean, we talk about how Wonder Man can be brought back. Mm -hmm. And without giving much away, I can say that there are 
uh, characters in the book who you do not expect to die and who do. They are your characters are extremely fragile. Um, it is one of the things that is most was most exciting to me as a reader to realize that these characters who you were following very closely could be maimed and that, that and that those scars would stay. They could be psychologically maimed and transformed by those scars, uh, and that would stick to the book, uh, and they could die. Uh, however, as magic seeps into this world, which is, of course, part of the unfolding story, not even death is really um, permanent anymore. What do you think about that? Uh, well, the I do think that if you're bringing a character back, uh, that if a character has gone through death, that's a transformative experience. Um, you know, I mean, even back in those days of Wonder Man and all that, I loved the fact that he died. I don't think I was, although I liked the character uh, in later years, I wasn't so thrilled when he came back because that sort of undid the power of it. And much as I admire Tolkien, I've, uh, once again, always felt that Gandalf should have stayed dead. I mean, that was such an incredible sequence in Fellowship of the Ring when he, he faces the Balrog on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, and he falls into the gulf. And, you know, his last words are, fly, you fools. And what power that had, uh, what, what how, how that grabbed me. And then he comes back as Gandalf the White, and if anything, he's like, sort of improved but I never liked Gandalf the White as much as Gandalf the Grey and I never liked him coming back I think it would have been a even stronger story if Tolkien had left him dead um, my characters who come back from death are the worst for wear in some ways they're not even the the same characters anymore uh, the the body may be moving but some aspect of the spirit is changed or or transformed and they've they've lost something one of the characters who has come back repeatedly from death is a minor character named Beric Dondarrion uh the lightning lord and and each time he's revived, he loses a little more of himself. And he was sent on a mission before his first death. He was sent on a mission to do something. And, and it's like, that's what he's clinging to. And he's forgetting other things. He's forgetting who he is or where he lived. He's forgotten the woman that he was once supposed to marry. Um, bits of his humanity are lost every time he comes back from death. But he, he remembers that mission. It's like his flesh is falling away from him. But this one thing, this purpose that he had is part of what's animating him and bringing him back to death. And I, I think you see echoes of that with some of the other characters who have come back from death. There, There is, a, I'm sure you are aware, a, a saying around the internet that if you piss George R.R. R. Martin off, he'll kill a Stark. <laughs> yeah, someone has used that as their avatar on one of the uh, blogs. Huh? More of me fanishly stalking George R.R. R. Martin after the break. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm John Hodgman in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is George R.R. R. Martin. 
He's the author of a series of fantasy novels collectively known as A Song of Ice and Fire, and separately known as Game of Thrones, Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords, Feast for Crows, and most recently, A Dance with Dragons. They're a collection of extremely popular novels recently adapted into the HBO series Game of Thrones. I read the books for the first time starting last year. I was late coming to them, and I was very excited by it. And I have to say they sort of took over my life for a year as I plowed through them. But I do remember the first moment on Twitter when I mentioned that I was just casually mentioned that I was reading them. First of all, I suddenly got so much more response on Twitter than almost anything I say about my own life or work or anything that I do. <laughs> um, and second of all, a lot of it was weirdly uh, angry. It was only later that I began to appreciate that there was this weird community of people out there uh, who uh, who were in, uh, feeling impatient to get the, the next book, which just came out this year, but, but after some delay. Uh, Fandom, particularly science fiction and fantasy fandom, has this sense of proprietorship over its treasured authors and also the sense that somehow they're in uh, collaboration with it. What, uh, how, how does that help your process and how does it uh, uh, complicate it? I mean, in, in one sense, it's it's great. It's exhilarating to know that you have so many readers and so many people are anxious for the next book. And uh, so many people are saying nice things about the book. Um but there there are dangers there as well i mean way back in the in the uh 90s um the the late 1990s i think is when the first website devoted to the series started it was a website called dragonstone started by a guy in australia mm-hmm. um and when i first discovered that oh look here's a fan site and all these fans are are, are discussing my my books and they're analyzing them i mean it was it was very exciting. It was, oh, look, they're they're actually paying attention. I mean, you're working hard on these books and you're putting in little things, foreshadowings or symbolisms or things that have double meanings and you're trying to hide things and you're saying these people are analyzing it and they're finding the things and, and that's all great. But it wasn't very long after that site started and I was reading it and enjoying it that I began to say, you know, I, I probably really shouldn't be reading this stuff because... For one thing, uh, they're generating so many theories and all that that some of those theories are bound to be right. Mm -hmm. And what do I do if I'm setting up a mystery that I'm going to solve in book six and people have already guessed this mystery as a book two and they're discussing what – do I change it? Do I say, oh, my God, they've already guessed it. They're four books ahead of me. I better change what I'm planning. But – I think it's a mistake to do that because that's what you planned. That's all, all the clues and the foreshadowing and the the superstructure that you build is in place for that reveal. You can't change it just because someone's got it. So I've sort of distanced myself from the sites. Now, a lot has happened since 1999. Um, there have been several explosions. The books have gotten progressively more and more popular. Uh, Dragonstone is, is long gone, but many other sites have taken its place, like Westeros and uh, mm-hmm. Tower of the Hand, uh, Winter is Coming, uh, gigantic sites with many thousands of members where the, these discussions go on. And, of course, when the TV show came along, that, that increased it by orders of magnitudes again. So it's exciting that it's happening. And I'm glad the fans are enjoying it, but I can't be a part of it. It'd be it'd be too much involvement. And then there's the dark side of it, which you've you know you've referred to in this uh, 
the sense of uh, proprietary feeling that some of the fans have, and that. Well, and I don't mean to 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 color it that darkly. I think there is, in the same way, someone writing a letter to Avengers and feeling that they get to speak directly to the creators. Right. There is within the genre a sense of of kinship and community, and that's only been um, heightened by the 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 internet and the and the seeming transparency of communication between author and reader that the internet provides. And I think that that is a case where uh, people feel like they're just playing along and helping out, and they're kind of part of the process. <laughs> right. <laughs> And and that that w- takes a weird form of saying you're doing it wrong, you know. That is that is one of the main, you know, sort of ethos of the internet is for someone to say to someone else you're doing it wrong. And uh, and in a weird way, it, it almost brings the creators of these things when they are available. Uh, it creates this impression among readers and and enjoyers of works that they're. They're right there next to the author and and have and and doing and they're they're as much a part of the process as the author is. Right. Well, that may be the case. Um, but and, and I think most of my I mean, I most of my fans are, are terrific. <laughs> I mean, I I would say ninety nine percent of my fans are amazing. You know, there's right. a fan group that does parties at conventions, the Brotherhood Without Banners, that are people who are regulars on sites like Winter Is Coming and and Westeros. Um, but there is also that one percent, you know, the 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 trolls or you know the detractors. I sure. think, as they were termed by the New Yorker article um, a few months ago that uh, Laura Miller did about me. Um, sure. Who, for whatever reason, feel um, some sense of betrayal uh, because I took too long to write the last book, or you know they were looking forward to the fourth book or something and then it came out and it wasn't the book that they expected um and you know some of those are <laughs> have really uh gone over to the dark side uh as one might say uh and so that's part of the experience too i guess of uh of this level of popularity sure and there's always going to be that that percentage of of readers or viewers who you know who feel that way, uh, uh, who who take a somewhat contentious pose, but in a sense, it's always flattering to some degree too, because they're devoting a fair amount of their lives and their emotions to your work. Well, it's true, it's true. Although, you know, to tell the truth, I guess it's sort of flattery that I could easily do without. <laughs> but uh... I get, uh, you know, for as much as much sort of mutual support and fun and excitement that. Um, that the the fandom community around science fiction and fantasy gives uh, to people within it, to the authors within it, the sense of of knowing your readers and knowing your readership and feeling their support. For all of that, there is, I think, a blind spot, which is that um, you know authors may be fans, but not all fans are are creators. And one thing that John Updike never did was sit down and say. You know what? I think they're going to be four rabbit novels, and here's when they're going to come out. And I'm going to make these promises to you, my readership, because John Updike, to the best of my knowledge, didn't care. The idea that an author just sits down and writes the best book that he or she knows how to write is a given in almost every other world of publishing. But in science fiction and fantasy, 
there is this sense of beholdenness. And I, and I think it comes from a nice place of, you know, we're in it together kind of thing. Um, but but I almost feel it's like you guys got to take it easy on yourselves, you science fiction and fantasy authors. Like, just do your thing and don't worry about what they say. I mean, time has changed. Publishing is changing. It's true. I mean, uh, I'm sure if F. Scott Fitzgerald was was uh, alive today, his publisher would be saying, hey, how about a sequel to Gatsby? Gatsby <laughs> did pretty well. Could we have Gatsby 2, son of Gatsby? You know? <laughs> I mean, uh, unfortunately, this is uh, – uh, or fortunately, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a reality of uh, – of modern publishing, which uh, has changed radically since the days of uh, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Maxwell Perkins and and all of that, um, it affects the work. I mean, it's, yeah. I know it's not supposed to. You, to. you probably don't get that in literature courses. It's you know the work and the writer, but there there's always commercial realities. There's the realities of writer's life. There's I mean something like Tolkien, the, the Lord of the Rings being divided into three books. Um, purely a commercial consideration uh, of his publisher at the time, not a literary consideration, uh, and yet it, it it had enormous influence on all the fantasy that followed for, for half a century. Well, I, I think that that's I, – I hope that it's clear that I absolutely agree with you. And But, I mean, boy, William Faulkner, when's he going to finish his next book, right? <laughs> that's right. I've been waiting forever. What's going on with that guy? Yeah, and Harper Lee. When oh. are we going to get to Kill a Mockingbird too? Lazy. <laughs> Hey, have you met Stan Lee? I have met Stan Lee, yes. Uh, Did he remember you from your letters? Um, he doesn't, unfortunately. <laughs> Actually, he doesn't even remember me from meeting me. I've met Stan Lee about six times, and each time it's like meeting him for the first time. Uh, <laughs> for him, anyway. That's the, heart, the but, heartbreak of a fan. George R. R. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real treat for me, and thank you for being on The Sound of Young America. Uh, my pleasure. I was, I was a thrill to do it. Thank you. Take care. George R. R. Martin is the author of the fantasy series A Song of Ice and Fire. His most recent book in the series is called A Dance with Dragons. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, John Hodgman. Like George R. R. Martin, I've been struggling to finish a book in my series of fantasy novels. That is all, the third in my trilogy of complete world knowledge and fake trivia will finally be published on November 1st, 2011, so you can please stop writing me letters. Or, if you want, you can start. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Engineering thanks this week to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios, Edgar Rivera at Stepbridge Studios, Chris Monte Belmonte at WRSI The River 93.9, and Elizabeth Stachow and Neil deGrasse Tyson at his StarTalk studio. You can find past episodes of this show online at MaximumFun.org, plus many other podcasts, including my own, Judge John Hodgman. That is all.